Since Trump was elected, I've read a bunch of books about fascist takeovers. I just finished Philip Roth's The Plot Against America. Since last November, I read It Can't Happen Here, 1984, Brave New World, and, and others. Now, you might question whether reading these books at a time when you're worried that democracy is under attack is good for your mental health. But I find something cathartic in reading them. Somehow seeing the worst-case scenario laid out makes it seem survivable. And of course, while we've seen genuine threats to our democracy under Trump, and I expect many more, we have yet to see our society transformed into Oceania or anything like it. And we're not yet at war with East Asia, although I suppose that could come any day now. But there's one thing every society in post-apocalyptic dictatorial novels have in common. They all control the populace by controlling access to information. That's actually Winston's job in 1984. And of course, every dictator in the real world knows if you control the news, you can convince the population to believe pretty much whatever you want. And if you have to murder a few journalists along the way, well, that's just the price of doing business, right, Mr. Putin? Now, Donald Trump hasn't had any journalists killed. Yes, he's targeted quite a few with personal attacks. He's suggested he should be able to punish those who write stories he doesn't like, and he's done everything he can to promote people in the media who are slavish sycophants, who reflect his twisted fantasy of his own infallibility. He's attacked entire outlets like CNN and the New York Times as fake news just for, well, reporting the news. Who knows what Trump would do if he had full control over the media? I don't like to think about it. Because there is one area where Trump does have total control, the information presented by the federal government. And we have seen in the past 40 weeks, from his very first days in the White House, a willingness to manipulate that information, whether it's through changes or outright suppression. And this week, we saw another example. This administration doesn't just deny the truth about climate change. It puts every obstacle it can in the path of taking action to combat climate change. So the EPA had a website called Climate and Energy Resources for State, Local, and Tribal Governments, only it's been subtly renamed to energy resources for state, local, and tribal governments. You catch the difference there? And all the links to resources to fight climate change have been removed. But not just the links to articles on fighting climate change, also the links to information on dealing with the effects of climate change. So Trump isn't just actively fighting efforts to stop climate change. He's also stopping communities from preparing for what's coming as a result of his own inaction. This is the kind of decision that can cost real lives. But I doubt anyone in the White House or in the EPA's leadership even hesitated to put this in place. I spoke last week on the podcast about how Donald Trump targets the truth-tellers. But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? He targets the truth itself. He is trying to reshape reality to suit his agenda. And whether he lies about what he said on a call to a gold star widow, and yeah, I'll be getting to that, or edits a website to hide the truth about climate change, he honestly seems to believe he can make the world what he wants it to be. Facts be damned. He's just getting started. Remember, we're only 40 weeks in, and while Trump is still a far cry from an actual tyrant, if there's one thing he has in common with Big Brother, it's his penchant for remaking reality to suit his needs. But this isn't a novel, folks. This is the real world. And this is not normal.
Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and kids, I have a question for you. Are drugs bad? Well, if you grew up in the 80s like I did, you know they're bad. Literally every single cartoon told you drugs are bad. Even He-Man. In today's story, Elena tried taking a magic potion which she thought would help her. Well, she found out there aren't any magic potions. And you know what? There aren't any magic drugs either. Anytime you take one from anybody but your parents or your doctor, you're taking a very big chance. You're gambling with your health, maybe even your life. Drugs don't make your problems go away. They just create more. The 80s weren't known for their subtlety, but between the cartoons and the TV ads with frying eggs and kids yelling at their dads... You are right! I learned it by watching you! The message was loud and clear. Just say no. But somehow, it didn't take. The abstinence message worked for drugs about as well as it works for sex. And now, we're facing a new drug epidemic. The rise of prescription opioids have led to an entire new generation of addiction, overdose, and death. People are taking opioids, often for valid medical reasons, becoming addicted, switching to heroin because it's cheaper and easier to get, then switching to fentanyl because it's stronger, and then overdosing and dying. It is a genuine crisis, a real national disaster. And today, President Trump made the deliberate choice not to declare that national disaster. Instead, he declared a national health emergency. And yes, there is a difference. A national disaster declaration means he can immediately use FEMA funding to address the issue. The national health emergency means there are no additional funds unless Congress appropriates the money. And Trump's own budget called for billions of dollars in cuts to the National Institutes of Health, for example. But the problem here is deeper than just how many dollars we throw at the epidemic. The problem is the President of the United States doesn't understand it. Not at all. He has that 1980s just-say-no mentality. He honestly believes if we play enough anti-drug PSAs, we'll solve the problem. The fact is, if we can teach young people and people generally not to start, it's really, really easy not to take them. And I think that's going to end up being our most important thing. Really tough, really big, really great advertising. Donald Trump believes it is really, really easy not to do drugs. Why does he believe it? Because he's never done them himself. And hey, that's great for you, Donald Trump. His older brother died of alcoholism, and he says he followed his brother's urging not to ever even try a drop of alcohol or any drugs at all. Congrats. But just because he managed to do it doesn't mean it's easy for others. People with predispositions to addiction, people with depression or anxiety or a host of other psychological or psychiatric problems, people who suffered from abuse, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, including veterans, heck, people facing peer pressure. It's not easy to avoid drug use. And like I said, when it comes to opioids, many addictions start out with legitimate use. We can't forget, there are real uses for opioids. There are people who need them to manage pain. Trump said today he would promote non-addictive painkillers, but guess what? His Justice Department, led by Jeff Sessions, has announced it's reversing Obama-era policies, relaxing enforcement of marijuana. Sessions gave a speech the same day as Trump, repeating the myth that pot is a gateway drug. And guess what's probably the best non-addictive alternative when it comes to pain relief? That's what Trump's announcement Thursday came down to, lip service. He announced a national health emergency, which isn't likely to result in any serious action. 
He made it clear he wants to return to the old days of ineffectual absence policies instead of the harm reduction policies we know actually work. The opioid crisis is real. People are dying every day. And telling people not doing drugs is easy isn't going to solve anything. It's a dangerous message. It tells people their addictions are their personal failures, which only drives them further down the spiral. It will only make things worse. I hope there are people in his administration and on his commission dealing with the opioid issue who will take this seriously, and I hope he listens to them. I hope someone can convince him that calling drug users weak failures is not an effective strategy. Because if that's seriously his plan, ads that tell people to say no to drugs, the death rate is only going to go up. I spent a lot of time on last week's episode talking about how Trump got into another fight with a Gold Star family. But until this week, he had at least managed to direct most of his ire toward the congresswoman who was in the car with Maisha Johnson, Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's widow, when Trump called her. It's easy to direct your fire at a congresswoman who wears shiny cowboy hats. A military widow whose husband died under your command? You'd have to be a fool to attack her directly. Well, folks, I'm sad to tell you we've elected just such a fool the president of these United States. Maisha Johnson went on Good Morning America this week and made it very clear exactly what happened on that phone call with the president. And we was literally on the airport strip getting ready to get out. And he called Master Sergeant Neil phone. I asked Master Sergeant Neil to put his phone on speaker so my aunt and uncle could hear as well. And he goes on to saying his statement as what he said was... The president. Yes, the president said that he knew what he signed up for, but it hurts anyways. And I was... It made me cry because I was very angry at the, the tone of his voice and how he said it. Like he, he, he couldn't remember my husband's name. The only way he remembered my husband's name because he told me he had my husband report in front of him. And that's when he actually said, La David. I heard him stumbling on trying to remember my husband's name. And that what hurt me the most because if my husband is out here fighting for our country and he risks his life for our country, why can't you remember his name? She verified everything Congresswoman Frederica Wilson said about the call. Trump said her husband knew what he was getting into. He didn't know her husband's name. And later that morning, Trump called her a liar. I had a very respectful conversation with the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson and spoke his name from the beginning without hesitation. Oh, he didn't use the word liar, but only one of them is telling the truth. And whom do you believe? The woman whose husband died in service to the country or the president who has proven himself a serial liar? It's not really close, is it? The truly amazing thing about this scandal was that it could not have been more easily avoided. All he had to do was contact the families soon after the soldiers' deaths. And by the way, we also learned this week he's been lying about contacting all the families of service members killed in action. He had to offer them simple, heartfelt condolences and never, ever say anything about a Gold Star widow other than, I'm so sorry for her loss and thankful for her sacrifice to our nation, no matter what she says about you. But this is Donald Trump. He cannot stand criticism. 
He cannot take it from anyone. He has the thinnest skin of any man who has ever lived. So when a grieving widow tells him he does something wrong, he doesn't apologize. He doesn't thank her. He goes on the attack and calls her a liar. And that is pretty much everything you need to know about Donald J. Trump. I want to do a brief update on another story from last week's episode. I talked about the Trump administration's attempt to block a 17-year-old undocumented immigrant currently being held by the government from getting an abortion. I am delighted to report that after the D.C. Circuit Court ruled in Jane Doe's favor, she was able to get the abortion she wanted. She did an interview with Vice about the experience and talked about how throughout the process, as people tried to talk her out of the abortion, her decision never wavered because she knew she wasn't ready to be a mother. She knew what she wanted and what she needed. And yes, we should celebrate that she was able to make that choice for herself and do everything possible to protect that choice for all women. In the interview, she talked about what she's hoping to do next. She wants to go to school and become a doctor, and she still has a lot of obstacles to overcome, but I I hope she gets there. You should check out the whole interview. There's a link on the website at thetrumpscorecard.org. Jane Doe's story is far from over, but I want to talk about another immigrant girl and possibly one of the worst things our government has done since Donald Trump took office. Rosa Maria Hernandez's parents brought her to the United States when she was just three months old. Rosa Maria is 10 now, and she suffers from cerebral palsy. And she recently had to travel in an ambulance from Laredo, Texas, where she lives, to Corpus Christi for surgery. And sometime during that two-and-a-half-hour drive, Border Patrol agents stopped the ambulance. And boy, did they hit pay dirt. They found just what they've been looking for, a disabled 10-year-old girl who happens to be undocumented. They showed a little mercy. They let her continue to Corpus Christi. They let her get the surgery. And they waited outside her hospital room and waited. And when she was released, they took that girl into custody and they put her in a home for migrant children. Only unlike the other children in that facility, she wasn't sent over the border alone. She's lived in America her whole life, and her parents are just 150 miles away from her back in Laredo. She's 10 years old. She has cerebral palsy. She's recovering from surgery, and she is alone. I have to say, I really don't get this one. I don't understand how Border Patrol agents can stomach doing this to a 10-year-old girl. Even if you fully believe in your mission, how do you live with yourself knowing that you're torturing a disabled child? Can you imagine how scared she must be right now? And yes, I lay this 100% at the feet of Donald Trump. These are his priorities. He's the one building this obscene wall. He's the one who rescinded DACA. He's the one who tells the Border Patrol what to do. He is the one who has demonized immigrants from the day he rode down the escalator to the lobby of his ugly building and announced his campaign for president. These Border Patrol agents spent days waiting for this girl to get out of surgery, and they did it because they know kicking her out of the country is a priority for Donald Trump. I have so much respect for the people who spend their lives in public service, but every 
Border Patrol agent involved in the capture of Rosa Maria Hernandez should be deeply ashamed of themselves. This is one of the ugliest incidences of the Trump presidency, and it is time to do the decent thing and return that poor girl home to her parents and let that family be. And while we're on the subject of children with disabilities, let's talk about what Education Secretary Betsy DeVos did to children with disabilities. She rescinded 72 separate documents that provided guidance to schools on how to comply with regulations dealing with special education and education for disabled students. These were documents that spelled out how schools should allocate resources in order to follow the law and provide a fair and equal education to disabled students. Without that guidance, schools have a lot more wiggle room when it comes to skirting the law and putting less effort into leveling the playing field for students who have disabilities. Now, the administration, of course, is selling this as part of its plan to undo what it calls burdensome regulations. But have you noticed that all the regulations they want to drop seem to actually help people? Whether they're pushing for fewer environmental protections or helping out big banks, I'll get to that one next. They always target the vulnerable. And who needs the government looking out for them more than students with disabilities? We know what happened before the federal government intervened to say these students deserved an education as much as anyone else. And that's still the law. But once again, this administration has sent a powerful message with this move. It has announced that it is stepping away from its duty to protect the most vulnerable. Rescinding this guidance isn't going to help anyone. It's only going to hurt the people who need help the most. So let's talk about those banking regulations. Vice President Pence cast a dramatic late-night tie-breaking vote on a bill that reverses a regulation put in place by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that, well, protects consumers. You'll remember the CFPB was the agency created by Elizabeth Warren before she was a senator, and it was designed to work independently so it can work effectively. Only Congress has the power to rescind any of its regulations if it passes a law doing so within 60 days. And recently, the CFPB passed a really important new rule saying banks and credit card companies couldn't put arbitration clauses into their contracts. Why is that so important? Because these clauses said that if you had a dispute with a company, you weren't allowed to sue them. Instead, you had to go to arbitration to have your dispute settled. And arbitration is much, much friendlier to corporate interests than to consumer interests, which is why those clauses exist in the first place. So the CFPB said banks and credit card companies can't force you into arbitration. Only thanks to Vice President Pence's tie-breaking vote, once again, they absolutely can. And remember, we're in the midst of a new era of financial scandals. Wells Fargo opened accounts for customers and charged them fees without their permission. It seems like we can't go a week without some financial company suffering a huge data breach. The CFPB was doing its job, protecting consumers. And Republicans in Congress, not a, a single Democratic senator voted for this bill, by the way, along with Pence and Trump, have just made it harder. Trump did promise to cut regulations, and he's doing that. But he also said he'd stand up to the powerful for the forgotten man, and he's not doing that. He's doing the exact opposite. He's standing up for big banks, for predatory lenders, for the corporations that don't think twice about screwing you over, for millionaires and billionaires for people like Donald Trump. 
The Trump administration is behind on its homework. Congress passed a law imposing new sanctions on Russia earlier this year and imposed an October 1 deadline for Trump to put them in place. But we're almost at the end of October, and Trump hasn't done it yet. Why not? Well, you know how much I hate to speculate, but I wonder if Donald Trump doesn't actually want to impose sanctions on Russia. I can't imagine why I would think that. But Trump hasn't just refused to impose congressionally mandated sanctions against Russia— He has dismantled the entire State Department office that handles sanctions. The office was called the Coordinator for Sanctions Policy. It was led by a senior State Department staffer at the same level as an ambassador, with a staff and everything. But now, that office is gone. Poof. Doesn't exist anymore. All that responsibility now lies in the hands of a single mid-level staffer. Now, Rex Tillerson is presiding over the destruction of essentially the entire State Department, picking apart the different offices piece by piece. So we shouldn't be shocked by one more office disappearing into the ether. But this one is important, and I don't think it's stretching speculation too far to suggest Trump and Tillerson may have particular motives for wanting to get rid of the sanctions office. We're all still waiting to see what comes out of the Mueller investigation. And in the meantime, this administration's cozy relationship with Russia doesn't seem to be slowing down. Finally, I want to end this episode with a clip from an interview so obsequious I thought Lou Dobbs might actually insert his giant globe of a head inside Donald Trump's rectum. But that's not why I wanted to play the clip. I don't really care about Lou Dobbs. I do care that this is the actual president of the United States. Uh, We have a very good relationship. People say we have the best relationship of any president-president, because he's called president also. Now some people might call him the king of China. I know. That's a lot of nonsense. And it's hard to take in all at once. But our president did just say some people might call President Xi Jinping the king of China. And part of that is just his usual blabbering foolishness. But I think another part is jealousy. I think he fantasizes about being king of America someday. That's it for the 40th, yes, 40th week with the neediest little toddler as our president. I want to take a moment to thank some of the amazing people who have signed up to support the podcast with a pledge on Patreon.com. Thank you to Michael Ferguson, Jacqueline Griggs, Barbara DeCesar, and Janet Cohen. And don't forget, you can join these fine Americans by going to Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash The Trump Scorecard, and making a pledge to support the podcast. It means so much. You can find links to all the stories I've talked about on the podcast today on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org, as well as links to find me on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, I love getting your emails at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. There is nothing desirable about drugs. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Normal.